Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast. You know, I love it when we get to have someone fantastic join us here on the podcast and talk to us. And today is no different. It's my pleasure to welcome Carol Roth, recovering investment banker and author of The War on Small Business. This is a book that is really lighting up the Twitter sphere, the morning shows. Everyone is dying to have her on the program. And so that's why it's super cool for me to have her here today. Uh, She has the best hair, the best tweets, and now the best book. Carol, thank you for joining us this morning. I love that. It's sort of it's uh, it's like basically where I am politically is small business, small government, big hair. So that kind of encapsulates <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> Come on, that's awesome. And I love big hair too. And it takes me some work, but I can make my hair big. So I appreciate all of the <laughs> the flair involved in that. So let's first talk about this book. Is really honestly, I see so many people tweeting about it on my Twitter feed. And online social media, I see so many people referring to it, holding it up. All of the best people, Deneen, Borelli, um, other people who are, who are politically on the right, um, those who are seen on all of the major shows. So the response has been overwhelmingly good. But how about the media? Are, are people in the mainstream media interested in interviewing you on this? Because this is not actually a right-sided or left-sided political book. It's a book about business. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a nonpartisan book, and I think that has worked to my disadvantage in this highly partisan media environment, uh, especially with so much of the mainstream media being complicit uh, in terms of running cover for some of the economic damage that has been done. So I have unintentionally proved my thesis that not enough people care about the backbone of the economy and um, I'm doing exactly what the small businesses would do. I'm going decentralized, so I'm talking to creators like yourself and other individuals who have podcasts and, and you know have smaller footprints to kind of get the word out on this decentralized basis because that big corporate press doesn't want to talk about this consolidation of wealth and power that's been going on. And so when we talk about a consolidation of wealth and power, Usually that's enough to get everyone interested because libertarians, people on the left who are concerned about economic inequality, uh, people on the right who are concerned that business might be too powerful, that that would infringe on their individual liberties. Everyone has an interest in this subject matter, yet the media has not been willing to give you an opportunity to explain why you wrote this book, what what it's about, and what's so important about it now. Because there, there's a, a definite nowness to the book that sometimes business books, you, you kind of feel like that's lacking. So talk to us a little bit about like why you wrote it and also the nowness of this, that this is so important right here in 2021 in the middle of the summer. Yeah, I mean, this is historic. This is the most um, underreported and probably um, important story that when you you go back in, in history, look back on it, no doubt people will be talking about it. But you had the situation where government picked winners and losers. They decided who was, you know, quote, essential and who was, quote, non-essential, which is, you know, still a huge slap in the face, um, who would thrive and who would fight to survive. And they did that based on political clout and connections, not based on data and science. And so that enabled this huge wealth transfer. Again, historic wealth transfer on a couple of different levels. Um, obviously, on just like a straight fiscal level, you cut, you uh, shut down these small businesses. The money that 
customers would spend with those businesses gets transferred and it gets spent with Amazon and Walmart and Target and these businesses that were open and thriving. So their revenues increase. So that's one level of sort of a direct transfer. The second piece that most people don't understand, and it's because it is complex and intentionally opaque so that you don't understand it, and you know the media, again, is somewhat complicit in this, is what happened with the Federal Reserve's support of the stock market and, and in aiding and abetting this wealth transfer, which has been going on for some time, but again, reached this historic proportion over the last year. We saw, based on the fact that they brought interest rates back down to zero and they printed trillions of dollars, I mean, we're talking that they have just shy of $8 trillion created out of nowhere on their balance sheet uh, right now, um, that basically there were seven tech companies that gained $3.4 trillion in value. And again, part of that's the revenue expansion, but part of that is multiple expansion, valuation expansion for the Fed disrupting risk in the market. And so you've got this, this going on. It was a record year for initial public offerings. It was a record year uh, for value raised by SPACs. At the same time, you have small businesses going out of business by the hundreds of thousands. We had 400,000 permanent closures that were reported by June of 2020, millions more struggling to survive, people out of work. So you have these two completely different economies that was a shift from one you know, part of the economy to the other. So overall, you can point to these data points and go, oh, look, you know, the, the stock market's up and the companies are raising capital and these companies are doing great. And you can make the argument that, that the economy has strength when it's only half of the economy that has these, these handful of big businesses where the 30.2 million pre-COVID small businesses were really struggling to survive um, and you know that's the issue is the disparity here and it's not based on capitalism it's not based on free markets it's based on government mandate and so the Biden administration appears to not just support this and and sometimes it feels like it was inadvertent but nothing that was this well executed could have been accidental it feels like it was a coordinated kind of hit job on small businesses and individuals who create wealth on their own without uh, assistance from the government uh, and the Biden administration seems to support this by the fact that they are creating these additional streams of, you know, the, the monthly payments for people who have children under the age of 17 and and all of that. What What is your take on how um, it seems that this this horrible happening, this thing that you have unveiled in your book, it's now being kind of cemented into regularity by the current administration? Yeah, I mean, it's a really bad situation. And to be completely fair, this was done before the Biden administration and then the Biden administration and, you know, the current Congress took it and, and took it up to the next level. So this is blame across the political spectrum here. Um, but the policies that were put in place, the pushing of the Federal Reserve, the, the structure of the stimulus payments, the enhanced unemployment benefits. And when I talk about that, I don't just mean unemployment that your employer pays into on your behalf or depending on the handful of states you might pay in as well that you should have access to. It's not even the lengthening of that. It's this extra incremental bonus, which started out at like $600 a week, now remains at $300 a week, which is basically incentivizing people 
to stay home on top of the stimulus checks that, again, you could maybe argue, okay, well, the first one makes sense, which you know, I probably wouldn't, but some people would. But by the time the, you know, this, this most recent version came around, we had already had historic levels uh, of the personal saving rate. So th- there wasn't sort of the data to back that up. But what it's doing is it's conditioning people to want to be on the government dole, that the government is going to take care of you. You don't go, need to go out and get a job, but we're going to compensate you for that. It is, in my opinion, this test run for universal basic income as a proposal. And these are all things that, again, may sound good to some people in theory who don't understand the economic consequences, but are utterly devastating and are taking people away from the mode of trying to create wealth, to create government dependency. And obviously we've seen this happen in Europe before um, and, and you know, what's happened to their economies and their competitiveness on a global scale. And unfortunately that is the direction um, that we're trending and it's being supported by government in terms of all these wealth creation opportunities. It's the disruption of risk in the market it's the the interference with jobs it's you know making it harder for people to get a house making it harder for people to own a small business all these things that help you create wealth and ownership and financial independence and economic freedom they're taking all these opportunities and making them more difficult and replacing it with this promise oh the government's going to take care of you and that should scare the bejesus out of everybody well, I think there are some people who are afraid. Uh, I think there are some people who are really, you know, looking around and trying to consider options for dealing with this new reality. But there really aren't any when you have the government literally creating a, a it's like a um, a house of cards, of financial cards, because when we print that much money and infuse it into the economy, we see a lot of scarcity because people are outspending this. It's like fake money. They're spending it like crazy, which drives the prices up. And then in response to that, you know, and I, I, I do appreciate you making the distinction, Carol, that the, the current situation began under a Republican administration and is now being advanced under a Democrat one. That's an important, you know, distinction to make, because instead of making this a left right issue, we should be making it an individual liberty and freedom issue for every American, regardless of party. Um, but there's 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 something more to it when you when you look around like most problems that I have when I look for a solution, I can say, OK, well, this solution might hurt me quite a lot. This one is an easier one, but will take longer. But there's something out there for me to, to look at and compare with this one. How do you fight um, inflation that's created by dollars? You know what I mean? It's like this is not one that we can just say, oh, Carol, you and I, let's get down and figure this out. We'll sit and we'll have, you know, coffee, figure this thing out and we'll, and we'll fix it. This one's a little different. Yeah, I've been having this discussion, um, you know, for for a long time and on an accelerated basis, as you can imagine, since the uh, the press has been going on with the book. And for those people who follow um, monetary policy and you know those kinds of you know, traditionally wonky things, we all agree that the Fed has to be reined in. Unfortunately, they have painted themselves, um, you know, into a corner basically. Because to understand what they're doing is that we have a national debt that's like twenty-eight and a half ish trillion right now. It's marching towards thirty trillion, um, and the low interest rates means that when we pay interest on our debt, um, that you know that it's a 
lower interest payment, obviously, than if interest rates were higher, which would be a higher interest payment. We're still paying a ton of interest because we, we have so much debt. But as interest rates creep up, what's going to happen is that the amount of money that we're going to take and we're going to need to service the debt, so to pay for things that are already, quote-unquote, bought, right, no new investments, but stuff that, we, that we've already supposedly bought on credit is going to be so high, it's going to crowd out additional spending and or increase tax burdens and or require more money printing, which destroys the value of the dollar and threatens our status as a reserve currency. So they've really created a very bad situation. And, you know, it's been done under the purview of Congress, who gives Fed, the Fed its mandate, even though it doesn't really, it seems like it has a lot of authority um, over them. So I feel like we need to put up and demand guardrails, um, which, as you can imagine, the government's not going to like because that's going to curb its spending. And that's the you know sort of you know, crazy cycle that we have going on. But you know, if they continue. Uh, at this pace to artificially impact all these different markets, continue to monetize our debt, we're going to be in a really bad situation. And because there are so many factors and it's so historic, uh, not just here in the U.S., but also you know the European Central Bank's been doing crazy amounts of, of printing as well, um, that <laughs> none of us can quite figure out what the outcome is. Like there's a whole like rainbow array of outcomes um, none of which, by the way, are good outcomes, and I think that's the the most important thing. So, yeah, you know, that that remains to be seen. It will be studied um, from now until the end of time. But but we need to stop having central planners have so much control over everything. That's not what our republic was set up to do. And certainly, when it comes to um, you know the, the managing the money supply and interfering in our financial markets. Um, it, it, we're going to have some serious consequences and people aren't going to see it coming because they just don't understand it. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest problem that we have is for an issue like this, I, I, anyone listening to this interview can understand what we're saying here, right, Carol? It's, this, this is not rocket science in the conversation we're having. But for the larger conversation, unless it is, is explained on the, the 6 o'clock news, on the 10 o'clock news, unless people who are quote-unquote influencers who – Quite honestly, most of them are dumber than a bag of rocks, and they would never talk about this because they don't care anything about economics. They just want to show. They don't even understand their... it themselves. I've seen no. people try it to to get in. They confuse, you know, things like uh, income and wealth. So if they're going to conflate that, of course they're not going to understand it. And by the way, I don't feel like they have the incentive to do it either because they're running cover for their their buddies in government. Right. Right. And. So for influencers who are mainly concerned with making sure that their filters are set to the correct setting and, you know, they're selling you whatever sheet set or, or you know, makeup uh, applicator that they are currently being paid to promote, there's so many people who are caught up in that whirly bird that when the hammer drops and full stagflation or full-blown inflation is here, they're just they're just going to wake up to it. It's it's not going to be a situation where they're seeing it coming. Every time I pump gas, I just pumped some right before I came home to do this interview with you. I literally was looking at that number and thinking, I was just paying like 80 cents less than this not a year ago. It's amazing the difference that these decisions made in DC can have in in our local area like in your everyday life the decisions they make really impact us. 
Yeah, I mean, let's just talk about um, you know, the price of gas for a second. And, and you know, the, the reality is that we could be facing you know, $5 gas here in the short order, and part of it has to do with the fact that there has been an active push uh, by the current administration to move us away from the energy independence that we have. I think I saw a stat that we were down like something like 2 million barrels a day in terms of production versus where we were. And obviously part of that um, has to do with the decreased demand from the pandemic, but part of it has to do uh, with some of the you know, pushes from the administration and ESG investing and whatnot. So now we are at the mercy of the global oil cartel, OPEC+, Plus. Um, which is now arguing over uh, how much we should be producing, and you know they're going to increase their output theoretically, but they don't want to go anywhere near the amount that we really need on the market based on all the projections I've seen from analysts that, that cover this, this arena. So the fact that we're not participating in and driving that market, and that's, again, not being done on a free market basis or because there isn't the demand for it, but because of central planning is insane. And the worst part, the, the, the utter hypocrisy of the whole thing is that you have a president now in President Biden who's pushing OPEC to produce more oil. Well, like if you're Mr. Green New Deal climate change, obviously we all live on the same globe and the production over there versus the production here is like having the same effect on climate, right? So, you know, if that was really the, the core issue, then he wouldn't be making that push right now. But he's literally jumping up and down and trying to get OPEC to increase production um, you know, so that he can maintain his sort of hypocrisy and, oh, look what I'm doing for our environment, when the reality is it's just shifting it over to a different part of the world. Yeah. So the, the thing that I, I really don't understand about all of this, Carol, when you when you mention OPEC, my blood starts boiling because even if let's let's say for the sake of uh, like a hypothetical, if you will, that you absolutely hate President Trump and you don't want anything to do with anything that he liked. But then, as president, you're presented with a slate of options, and some of the options are the opposite of what President Trump did, but they will hurt the country that you live in, and inadvertently, you and yourself and everyone else that you can you know, see with your own eyeballs will actually hurt them financially. There's another slate of options where you can just simply say, I'm choosing to continue these because they're good for Americans, and now that it's the Biden administration, it doesn't matter who started them. What matters is that now I'm overseeing an economy where we are net energy producers and where gas is under, you know, $2 a gallon and blah, 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 blah. blah. And so I will take credit from it from the moment that I became, became president, January 20th on. And President Biden decided to take the option where he's basically shooting himself in the foot because not shooting himself in the foot would be agreeing with President Trump. I don't understand that. And, and I know Democrats are the opposite of Republicans. I know we live in a left-right paradigm, but I don't get that, Carol. I would, I would never, someone that hated me and I hated them, as if I would waste energy and gray hair on that, if I needed to do the opposite of what they were doing, but it would hurt me, I would simply say, I make my own choices and I'm going this way because it's good for me, rather than hurt myself in order to be the opposite of that person. I mean, this, this is like the, this is the biggest issue that we're facing as a country, right? We, we've gotten away from principles, and everybody's making decisions based on parties and politics. 
which means that we're going to have you know, even worse outcomes above the bad outcomes that we were likely going to have because the system is broken. So, yeah, I mean, you've got people who will gaslight not everybody else but themselves into believing that the reality isn't the case. And that's the that's the crazy thing because, like you said, like Biden could do – whatever he wanted. I mean, there was some hope that maybe he was going to be a moderate and come out and have some you know, good policies. And then he can paint it and he could paint it and just say it's not the same as Trump. And even if it was like the media is going to run cover for him, be like, no, no, it's totally different, even if it's exactly the same. So he can still manage that message if he wanted to do the right things. But it has been completely the opposite. I mean, the amount of um, policies that they've put out that harm small business and, and continue to consolidate power, um, these things that, that hurt the economy, it just goes to show that the underlying plan isn't really for them to take care of us or that the Democrats care about the little guy or you know any of these things. It's that the government is set up to consolidate power and benefits for the politicians and their cronies in the ruling class and the rest of us be damned. And unfortunately, people who've made those decisions are going to find a way to, you know, again, gaslight themselves and, and blame somebody else as they always do. And you know, we're all going to end up paying the price literally for that. Yeah. And I want to, I want to just point out that so the ruling class, yes, we, we know who that is. It's the 435 of them who are in Congress, you know, even the ones who have a, a, a good intention and are there to represent the people, they're still a part of that elite. But there's also a new government elite, and that's the people who live in that metro area, that DMA surrounding Washington, D.C., and it's one of the richest DMAs in the country. And they're in a union. The union actually works against the American people, which is why I hate I hate public sector unions. I'm fine with private sector unions. You know, you, you unionize, you do whatever you want to do because it's my choice to do business with you. But I don't have a choice on governments. It's not like a government B I can pick to use a smaller, more limited government, government B that's still the United States government. I have to use the one that we have. So um, I think there's, there's an importance in noting that there are some average everyday, what would otherwise be middle to upper middle class people who shop at Sam's Club or Costco and are pretty much the same as the rest of us in middle America, except they work for the federal government and their consolidation of power is actually stronger than the elites who are in Congress because they effectively thwarted the, the, a, whole, a whole section of the agenda of the Trump administration when, when he was in office and they are allowing by simple virtue of not working against the Biden administration, him to implement his agenda, and they're not elected. So these are not people we can just say, well, I don't like you anymore. I'm going to recall you or I'm going to not vote for you next time. They're permanently entrenched. And I know the inner workings of this group because my parents, they're both retired now, but they used to work and they were, you know, GS, quote unquote, GS workers. And my sister is still one. She's an SES, so she's even higher up. And they, they've explained to me how it works on the inside. And it's, it's like something out of a movie and not a dystopian one, a very frightening kind of a horror movie, if you will. Nobody gets killed or there's no carnage, but it's still horrifying because it's a train you can't stop. 
Yeah, it, it goes to the broader theme that I talk about in the book and I think is going to be the fight we see playing out over the, the next decade or so, which is this fight of decentralization, which represents you know freedom markets, freedom and choice, um, versus this centralized, you know, centralized power, you know, coercion, force, control. And anywhere you see this consolidation of power, and it could be the government itself, it could be these unions and other special interests as you're talking about, it could be the big business cronies, you know, that's like sort of this unholy uh, triumvirate there. Um, anywhere where you see that consolidation of power, you're going to have the force and the coercion, you're going to have a handful of people making decisions, and it's going to lead to worse outcomes, no matter what the intentions are. And I would argue most of the time the intentions are for them to increase their power because that's just human nature. You know, if you you believe in greed is a thing, uh, which you should, at least capitalism has a mechanism to self-regulate greed, uh, where central planning just sort of pretends that it doesn't exist. And that, you know, ends up being the, the big dynamic here. So I think anywhere where you have that central control of consolidated power, you know, those are the things that we need to fight and we need to break apart if we're going to ever break apart this monster. Otherwise, as I said, we end up in socialism, you know, we can end up with a, a Marxist type of revolution, um, and, and the outcome is, again, less freedom, including economic freedom for everybody. So when you say... <laughs> When you say we can end up with this, you know, it's like it's a revolution. I, I think back to, you know, the Tea Party years where everyone was like, you know, we have our Second Amendment and we're not going to put up with this tyranny and blah, blah, blah. And then fast forward to the pandemic where they were like, stay home, don't go to church. And we're like, OK, uh, keep, we're keeping your kids out of school for a year. Some of y'all, if you if your kids aren't in private school, your kids ain't going back unless we get these, this and that. And parents are like, okay. And so, you know, sometimes in private conversations with some of my friends, I'm like, hey, um, where's all this revolution and, you know, people marching in the streets and taking on the government that we thought we were going to do if things ever got tyrannical? We're in, right in the heart of tyranny right now where we're told we can't go to church. Uh, churches have to be closed. Pastors are being arrested. People are being fined millions of dollars. And businesses are literally having their doors padlocked because they're trying to make payroll because they have to pay a mortgage on a building or something. They have to have their restaurant open. They can't close. And people are being arrested. People are being fined. No one's marching in the streets. What's going on? Where does the apathy come from, Carol? Whew, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. I remember having this conversation with my husband in, in February 2020. Mm-hmm. was just kind of like the hypotheticals, like, hey, if this virus comes here, like, could you lock people down for two weeks? Because, like, we were like saying, like, what would you do? Like, like, like could you just, like, stop everything <laughs> you do it? Could you do it? And we both came to the conclusion of, no, you, there's just no way you couldn't do it. And, frankly, that's what happened because we weren't all in it together, and they didn't lock everybody down. They just locked some of the people down, again, based on, on cloud and connections. And you know, this ends up in that this like the cycle, you know, that 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 old meme, um, which I think came from a movie or a book originally, with the hard times create strong men, <laughs> strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times, right? So we're we're somewhere in the the weak men creating hard times phase of this like four um, pace cycle here, and it's 
staggering to me. I mean, and, and I give a shout out to, in the book to some of the small business owners that stood up. Shelley Luther, who was thrown in jail and, and, and eventually in short order released. Uh, Tillis Jim, who racked up, as you mentioned, you know, more than a million dollars in fines. Um, so there were like, you know, some individuals <laughs> willing to stand up, but holy cow, that's the biggest surprise and one of the scariest things that have come out of the last 12 to 15 months is just how easy it is to get the American public to comply. Now, maybe after 12 to 15 months, um, you know, you fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Maybe we're in that scenario where after being fooled once, it doesn't happen again. But boy, you know, whether it's you know, from our own government or from a third party, that was pretty scary. I agree. Um, I just was waiting. And, and there were some bright spots, like there were some, um, you know, let's get together and go, you know, frequent restaurants that are teeter tottering on the brink of, of, you know, falling apart. And Chef Andrew Gruel, who's big on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, By he's way, obviously one of the endorsers of my book. He's yes, phenomenal. yes, he is phenomenal. But he he started a fund, you know, to to help restaurants stay afloat. So there have been some bright spots, there have been people helping each other, there have been some real like the American spirit is still alive. But I feel as if somehow, and it's the social media, or it's the wealth and prosperity, because let's face it, wealthy nations do tend to have a a larger group of people who are less gritty because, you know, they're busy entertaining themselves and kind of, you know, earning money and then spending it and kind of being really obsessed with their own tiny, you know, uh, you know, one acre or a third of an acre or condo or wherever they're living. They're really obsessed with that. And they don't really pay attention to their government or to their schools or to the local government or even to the churches that are nearby, what they're doing. But there there is this thing where a nation like that they find themselves in the midst of turmoil and all of a sudden a segment of that nation, it's not everyone wakes up and realizes we've got to do something about this. Do you feel as if, and I know this is not a part of what you're talking about in your book, your book is the war on small business, how the government used the pandemic to cause to crush the backbone of America. But there's something else going on that I feel like interfaces with waking Americans up and it's the critical race theory um, the the proliferation of it, it's all over social media. People are standing up, they're confronting their school boards, they're talking about creating pandemic pods, even though, you know, we're basically out of the pandemic, but they're talking about creating other solutions. Do you feel like that may be the impetus for people waking up and then realizing once they're done, you know, kind of working on getting their kid an education that doesn't involve socialist indoctrination, they might notice, oh my gosh, I just paid five sixty nine for a gallon of milk? So, I mean, there's part of me <laughs> that would love <laughs> to say yes, but I, we've seen this before in terms of you know, individuals kind of rallying behind one thing and sort of ignoring the, the broader issue. And I, I'm going to use 2A as an example. I think our Second Amendment rights have been in the one area that I can point to where people consistently have, you know, who believe in the Second Amendment have, have consistently stood up and said, no, we're not giving an inch on this. Like, don't, don't even try. And you know, that, no matter what, <laughs> what is thrown out, like, that's been a great pushback. But while everybody's been pushing back on that, look at the creep in all of these other areas. 
So while, you know, it's heartening to see the pushback on CRT and, and things that are anti-individualist and, and, you know, socialist and Marxist in policy, I, I just, I look to, you know, the Second Amendment as an example and just feel like people pick something <laughs> that's important and don't realize the connection to the broader issue. And so I'm fearful that that is going to be more of an isolated fight rather than seeing it in the the macro view that probably should be taken on it. I almost feel like, Carol, you need one of those, um, I don't know if it's a Telegram group or a Facebook group or something like that, where everyone who's angry about inflation goes there (laughs) and then kind of gets instructions from you on what to do to stop it. Because the NRA kind of does that with the NRAILA.org website. And and the thing about, I think the, the missing key to having people activated on the issue you're discussing, which is tyranny overall. Right. So th- this this is an issue that impacts every American, even welfare recipients who are using their EBT cards. There's a limit on the EBT card. And if everything goes up, if the cost of regular meat goes up, and it has, everything goes up, then you get less food for whatever your EBT allocation is. So this is not something that skips over the poor. The rich are able to better insulate themselves from it, but they notice the increase in prices as well. So th- th- there's this the thing about the Second Amendment, because I love that you pointed that out, is I'm, I'm a huge Second Amendment supporter, but the NRA created an apparatus, and then they have other little groups that support as well, um, where they basically say, this is what the government wants to do, and this is who you need to call to oppose it. You know, this is this is the legislation we're bringing yeah. to protect the right of Floridians who are running away from hurricanes to, you know, carry their firearms with them ac- across state lines to not be disarmed. in in you know, the case of a hurricane, they actually brought that legislation and won because it makes sense. You want to be able to defend yourself when there's unrest because everyone's running <laughs> from a hurricane. Uh, so the, the issue here is we don't have an apparatus by which Americans can literally say, I thought it was just me. I thought I thought I noticed that the cereal boxes were smaller, but the same price. That's everywhere. That's not just me. We we have an apparatus for defending the Second Amendment and we have an atmosphere. It's it's like a mindset. Once you support the Second Amendment, you understand that you don't want any infringement, even if it's something you don't use, even if it's something like bump stocks. I don't use bump stocks, but I don't want to see anything outlawed because I know that means that can outlaw something else. We right. need that you're same kind of shall mindset. Not be infringed right. Saying, shall not right. be infringed. Right. <laughs> so you're the queen of uh, making these kinds of slogans. I'm on your website. <laughs> you have actually, let me let me just tell the people here, just in case you're not going to click the link at the show notes. I'm looking here. I <laughs> so you have Cirque de Soleil. When something mm-hmm. is beyond pathetic and pitiful, it's Cirque de Soleil. So, Carol, I'm I'm mandating, I'm, giving, I'm charging you, you have to create one of your signature slogans for what's happening. You've written the book now. You just have one little extra task, create the slogan, and then the rest of us will pick the slogan up and we can start talking about it and convincing other people that we don't have to experience inflation. We don't have to let OPEC create the oil for us. We have it here in, in abundance. We We can actually have the same kind of fervor about having a good business atmosphere in America and having a limited government and no tyranny, we can have that same attitude. It shall not be tyrannical uh, about business, the same attitude that we have about the Second Amendment and the soon-to-be attitude that will be implemented once parents are done fighting back against CRT. 
All right, well, I'll give, I'll give you one that's uh, on a, a specific issue, and I'm going to caveat and say, I didn't actually make this up. I got this from somebody else. I can't remember who, otherwise I would attribute it to you, wonderful person, um, but I'm not going to, to take credit for it because it's not mine. But the PRO Act, which is one of these big pro-union and you know anti-work choice and anti-gig work which is then anti-economic freedom bills, is something they're trying to jam through. It, it threatens 59 million jobs. It threatens economic freedom. It threatens uh, small businesses that use contractors. So somebody said to me, or I read on, on Twitter, your work, your choice. And I feel like <laughs> in all of these legislations that are towards raising the minimum wage or pro-act or whatnot, your work, your choice. Simple, beautiful, throws it right back <laughs> in the face of everybody who wants to talk about choice. If you're actually for free choice, your work, your choice. What do you think, Stacey? I like it. I like it. It's not as snazzy as Cirque de Soleil, but your work, <laughs> your choice is fast to say. Rolls off well, the yeah, tongue. I didn't, I didn't make it up. I just co-opted it. But yeah, well, I'll, I'll keep thinking. <laughs> I, I was going to say, we can use that one until you come up with something like recombobulate. What you need to do after you become discombobulated. After you're thrown right. into a state of confusion, you need to spend time regathering your thoughts and recombobulating. This is the way me and my sister used to talk growing up. We would make words up that were more fitting than what our vocabulary <laughs> options were in the Webster Dictionary. I love this. And I think... If we have something catchy and we have someone with the hair that's big enough to push it through, we can we can do something about this. We can educate these people. You've written the book. We need to now put our little trumpets on it and make sure that everyone gets it and reads it, which the link is in the show notes to this podcast. Um, I could obviously talk to you all afternoon, but <laughs> I think you probably have other places to go and talk about this book and promote it. And I don't want to stop you from doing that because in my opinion, this is the subject that was least covered over the past year and a half. This is the subject that Americans actually need to have covered for them so that they can understand in the simplest terms what has been done to them and how they are participating in it and then what the solution is. So the only way to find that out, my friends, is to get the book. I can tell you, uh, I, I'm, I already have, I've already ordered mine on Amazon. It should be here post-haste and I'll be reading it voraciously. And you should also follow Carol Roth on Twitter, at Carol J.S. Roth. You are amazing. Thank you for coming on. And I hope that you sell just millions and millions of these books. Oh, you're so so kind. And thank you for your support of small business advocacy, of economic freedom, of common sense, individual principles. <laughs> uh, I'm just so, so appreciative to have somebody like you with a voice like yours. You're continuing to spread good, good messages like this. So it's been uh, a privilege for me to chat with you. Awesome. So we'll see you online. And I just encourage everybody who's listening to the podcast, share the podcast. Uh, this is the best explanation you're going to find for what's happened to us over the past year and a half. And then order the book. Yeah, order it on Amazon. I said so. I know I know that's probably not the best place to get it, considering that Amazon is a part of the problem. But you want the book fast, just order it and then we'll be guilty about it later. Excellent. Thanks, Stacey. You can also check out bookshop.org, too, to, to support small business booksellers. But again, we've got to get the word out there. So we're capitalists. Get the word, and then, and then we'll address the problem. Absolutely. Carol, you've been amazing. Uh, we'll see you online. 
All right. See you online. All right. See ya. And the website is carolroth.com. And I love it when a plan comes together. So it's so great to talk to her. I want to tell you about something really quick. We have Thrivent, where you can find your purpose and live your calling. Start your next career today by going to thriventfinancial.com slash advisor careers. David A. Sample is dying to chat with you. You can email him at david.sample at thrivent.com or visit thrivent.com slash careers. And you can also save money and stop supporting abortion by having your health insurance converted by canceling it and joining the Alliance for Shared Health. That's health sharing. It's a health share ministry with over 40,000 households participating, sharing the financial burdens of healthcare expenses, including needs sharing for critical illness, accidents, dental and vision. Listen, you get the virtual care provider at zero cost. You get the share prescription card, lab and imaging tests at discounts of up to 80%. And open enrollment is now. So don't miss out on the chance to save 50 to 70% on your monthly premiums. And you can make a difference in the lives of others who share your values. It's the Alliance for Shared Health, changing healthcare and changing lives. Click the banner ad at familyvisionmedia.org and stacyontheright.com. So we'll be back with more podcast material for you. Don't forget to share the show and visit me at stacyontheright.com. God bless.